How are you, Scott? Hey, Adam. Why don't you give me a recap of February? Absolutely, yeah. February was a pretty good month for firehouse training. We had some great feedback from our professional development for the fire services, fire service leadership roundtable that we had virtually. We had fire chiefs from across North America and other industry leaders, both in the hazmat world and in the industry and spill response realm that joined us for a session to discuss professional development in the fire service, different opportunities for promotional processes, as well as some health and safety initiatives uh, that both fire departments and uh, private industry are going through at this time. We also ran our trench rescue awareness course this month, and just last night we finished our hazardous material spill response training where we had some more individuals from across the region join us, not only from fire services, both volunteer and career, but also various hazmat teams and those from the spill response industry. Again, just looking to enhance their training and understand a little bit more about things from the incident command systems to the provincial spill regulations that we have here in the province. Awesome. And what do you have coming up for March? March is going to be a busy month. Firehouse training is taking part in the security police and Fire Virtual Career Expo. That's being presented by Firefighting in Canada and also Blue Line Magazine. We're going to be having candidates from all over the country participating in our virtual booths, uh, coming to discuss with us different um, career paths that they're looking to embark on, whether it's getting into the security industry, either in private or public security, including some law enforcement. There'll be various law enforcement agencies on site at that virtual conference as well, including different fire departments and private fire training companies like ourselves. We'll be there to answer questions for candidates that are looking for different career opportunities uh, and those that are looking to enhance our applications as they move forward into the emergency services. On Tuesday, March 9th, we're going to be planning our fire service interview preparation seminar. We had some great feedback in January when we ran our career coaching day. So this fire and emergency services interview prep seminar is designed to help the candidates that are looking for more success when it comes to dealing with a panel interview in the fire service. Some of the things that we're going to be covering uh, in that Tuesday evening session We'll be focusing on understanding behavioral-based interview principles, what fire departments are looking for in today's candidates, as well as some interview question and answer preparations. We will have some industry professionals there, including those from human resources, as well as fire chiefs. We're looking to get feedback to candidates on the current applications. So we're very excited for that, and that's happening on Tuesday, March 9th. We've also recently partnered with Element 3 Robotics here in Ontario to offer a CBRNE hazmat fundamentals, ground robots, and also drone training. So we're going to be running a virtual session on Saturday, March 13th. And this course is pretty exciting because we're going to be offering training for interagency response procedures. So anybody that's looking to work in the fire, police, or paramedicine industry can participate in this course. We'll be doing a review on basic drone systems and ground robot capabilities, all to the NFPA 1072 standard for hazardous materials and CBRNE. So those looking at taking courses and content to either enhance their applications or even improve their own training that they're getting with their emergency service, we do highly recommend the, the CBRE and Hazmat Fundamentals Ground Robot and Drone Systems course. That's Saturday, March 13th. That runs from 9 until 1, and the cost of that is $165 plus HST. Our lead instructors for that are actually retired police officers that have had the opportunity to train our local provincial fire marshal's office here in the province, and we'll be taking that training to our students here at Firehouse. So very excited to have them on board. As usual, we have our weekly professional fire service education sessions that's happening on Thursday, March 18th, and then, of course, our Firefighter 5 a.m. club event, which has certainly picked up some steam. We've had some very special guests this past month. We had Amber Bowman, as you know, a Canadian national 
uh, you know, fire fit champ and world champion multiple time. She participated in our 5 a.m. club and we had some good feedback from listening to her story and her journey and what she could bring to the table when it comes to motivational content for our students. So that motivational 5 a.m. club is happening on Tuesday, March 23rd. With the current pandemic, we know that we're slowly starting to come out of lockdown, you know, here in the province and looking forward to some more positivity and some events coming up. One of the things that we are offering here at Firehouse Training is the St. Patrick's Day Limited Edition T-shirt. For $25, feel free to check us out online and order one of those T-shirts and hopefully have the opportunity to get out and about this St. Patrick's Day as some of the lockdowns start to lift. And hopefully we can get out in a more social atmosphere to enjoy a pint or two with our friends. So check out our website, check out our St. Patrick's Day Limited Edition Tea. They are only $25 and you can find them on our website at firehousetraining.ca. For any other inquiries on our services, either from the career coaching side of things, resume or cover letter prep, or even mock interview preparation for those that are looking to get hired onto a fire service, or those just looking to enhance their training and also continue their own uh, personal and professional development. Check out our website, follow us on Instagram at Firehouse Training, or on our Twitter at Firehouse Train One, and check out some of the content that we have coming up, not only in March, but some other planned courses that we have coming up this spring. So again, we hope everybody keeps safe, and we look forward to some more lockdowns lifting as the spring gets closer. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 33. I'm Scott Hewlett. Many fire service training divisions are hurting for strong training officer applicants due to the schedule, the heavy and hectic workload, and desk work required. More unfortunate than that reality is that firefighters are captains looking for a fallback plan or a role to ease into to ease out of their career. See training as the golden ticket. As someone tasked with the great responsibility of training future and current firefighters, you should be striving to be an example to the former and a respected peer of the latter. If you weren't engaged or respected as a firefighter or a captain, if you aren't able to perform the skills at the level you're expecting others to perform, if you know some things but you have no people skills and even less of an idea of how to instruct, if you aren't versed in fire service history and current research, and worst of all, if you're going into the role for you and not for the members in front of you or the community standing behind them, you don't belong. You shouldn't be there. My guest this episode has an ethos of personal improvement, a long love of the fire service, and a desire to be of service to the community of firefighters and the community that they respond to. Here's my chat with Andrew Gould. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Scott. Everyone. It's going okay. You? Not too bad. Awesome. So let's kick off with where you grew up and tell me about your upbringing. So I grew up in Nova Scotia on a property that was actually deeded to my family by the king of England when they came over amongst the first Scottish settlers to come to Canada. It was a hundred acre property in the middle of absolutely nowhere in Nova Scotia. There wasn't much going on and there still wasn't there. So it was a bit isolated for an upbringing, I would say. Like there weren't a lot of people around, friends or kids my age around. A lot of time outside exploring the woods, exploring the property, 
my parents didn't really mind if I took off and came back for dinner kind of thing. Did you guys do anything with the land? So we had a garden for ourselves. You know, we grew most of our own produce for the summer and fall. And we farmed maybe an acre, acre and a half. You know, we'd do potatoes and, and things like that that we could store for the winter. I wasn't a big fan of it when I was a kid. I'm not going to lie. I was the youngest, so my job was always after the land was tilled to go around and pick up the rocks, which I never quite understood how there were always so many rocks. But <laughs> wasn't the funnest job around, but it had to be done. Yeah. Did your dad do anything outside of your homestead? Like, was there any other occupation that he had? He had a few. Where I grew up, the big industry, there's a Michelin tire plant not too far from my home. He worked there a number of years when I was a kid, and then they downsized, so unfortunately he was let go. So he got into a few other industries doing quality assurance, parking meters, there's a factory for that. So he had quality assurance there for a long time. And then my parents divorced when I was around 10 or 11. He moved into the oil and gas industry, worked in Newfoundland for a little while, and then moved out to Alberta permanently when I was 15 or 16. Early on, you had a couple experiences, one trauma, one fire-related. Tell me about those. The trauma one, the driveway to the house I grew up in ended on the Trans-Canada Highway. So it was a very busy road. It was a two-lane road. You couldn't hear yourself talking outside some days because of the transport truck traffic. One day, my dad had gone to the gas station down the road with my brother and his friend in our family minivan. And when he was coming home, he was waiting for traffic to clear to turn left into our driveway, and the driver wasn't paying attention behind him and rear-ended them at, at high speed through the van into our front yard. And the local fire department had to cut him out. He was banged up pretty good. I was young, eight or nine, and I was told to go to the neighbor's house. The closest house to us was my cousin's, maybe 300 meters away from our house, so I was told to go over there, kind of get out of the way, right? My parents were busy, obviously, but I was able to watch the fire trucks from the other house, and that definitely left a lasting impression on me. I didn't want to be stuck watching. I wanted to be in helping however I could, and the same thing happened with the fire incident. So we had a three-story burn that was being repainted. The painter left some rags soaked in paint thinner, in the barn where the sunlight could hit it from a window. Obviously, I understand now that that caused it to combust. So we came home from town and our barn was gloriously aflamed, legitimately almost fully involved. And I remember, same thing, like, go to your cousins. And watching my dad run into the barn to save our tractor, that was almost irreplaceable to us at that time. We wouldn't have been able to afford to replace that tractor and that would have made a little bit of farming that we did almost impossible. Right. So again, I wanted to be helping, not being shoved to the side. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that your dad left when your parents got divorced. How did your mom and you and your brother cope with that? So my brother was gone. He's eight years older than I am. He had moved to the city to Halifax, was, I believe, in college at the time. So it was just my mother and I. Mom did the best she could, unfortunately. I am my father's son, and I carry a lot of the same traits that he did. So I think I reminded her a bit of what had happened to my dad. So there were some struggles. There was definitely some communication struggles between us for a number of years that really strained that relationship. How was school for you? What was that experience like? School, academically, 
was very easy. I never really struggled with academics. School socially, not the greatest experience I've ever had in my life. I was a pretty awkward kid. So up until high school, it was tough. I didn't enjoy going to school. In high school, my school and two other districts actually amalgamated into what they called a super school at the time. I went from having a class of maybe 200 kids in my grade level to, I think I graduated with closer to 1,000. So I was able to find my group of people in that amalgamation. And the last few years of high school were definitely a lot easier than the first years. Did you have any small jobs before you got involved in the fire service? So I had one job as I was growing up. I worked for Sobeys 20 minutes from where I grew up as a cashier and then a baggage packer and then uh, ended up working in the deli at the end, which was great. It just ended up being a great fit. It was a great team. We had a manager who was able to put people in the positions where they were able to do the best work. It was kind of the first experience I had with a good team environment. You were at school when September 11th, 2001 happened, right? Yeah. This makes a lot of people that we work with feel a bit old, but I was in grade eight when it happened. We didn't have the capability to put TVs on or, or watch it as a lot of people did. My track and field coach was also my social studies teacher had a radio and I didn't hear it, but the period after lunch, one of my friends came in and said, man, you're never going to believe what happened. Went on with the rest of the school day, went home, and my mother was in tears, and the TV was on, and, and that's when I got to see what had happened. And it was, I mean, shocking as it was with everyone. You were telling me that that kind of pushed you to try and join the local fire department. I mean, obviously, the two experiences that I had seeing the fire department show up to our house pushed me a little bit in that direction and then watching seeing what was happening and seeing the people going to help man i just i wanted to be a part of it i wanted to be part of the people who helped so that was grade eight i wasn't able to join the fire department until i was 16 but the minute i was able i picked up an application to the department and started and you were telling me that the fire chief was also the mailman yeah yeah so very very rural very small fire department. The fire chief was, like you said, he was the mailman. So I was driving by one day, I think it was on my way back from work, and they had the fire trucks pulled out, and there were a few people hanging around. So I stopped in and expressed my interest in joining. The fire chief was there, and I had no idea who he was, but he knew who I was. He said, you know, you're Mike's son, right? He knew who I was because he was the mailman that delivered the mail to our house. So he gave me the application and said, fill it out and stick it in your mailbox and I'll pick it up tomorrow. And the way applications for that fire department worked was they would take all the applications to a monthly general members meeting and vote on if they would accept the person or not, Hmm. which fortunately they accepted me. I started, I think two weeks later, I went to their weekly training night, got some gear, got a pager and and started down this path. And you were saying you were at the station often. Yeah, I think with my home life, with my parents' divorce, and, and then the, the struggles that I had with my mother after that, it was definitely a bit of an escape for me. When you joined the department, you were given a key to the door, and it's not like it was staffed. It's not like there were other shifts on. You could just go in anytime you wanted. And so I found things to do. I polished 
the chrome on the trucks. I cleaned. I did whatever I could to justify being there for a few hours to to escape. Added to that was the passion that I was finding for the job. Once I started, I didn't want to stop. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be a part of it. So I just found things to do around the station. Was it a well-funded department, even though it was rural? I don't think well-funded would be the way to put it. No, not well-funded at all. The only funding they had was from the tax levy of the area that they responded to, which was sparsely populated at best. We frequently had fire trucks that our insurance company would say, listen, you can't drive that anymore. It's too old and we won't insure it. We were fortunate in that there are a lot of volunteer departments in Nova Scotia, some much better off than others, certainly a lot better off than uh, the department I was a part of. And we were able to get equipment from those departments, either donate it or sold at cost that allowed us to continue to do our job. And how did you balance still being in school and volunteering? Fortunately, it's a small community. So where our school was, was kind of the next fire department's district over. And they were very understanding. Like my science teacher was one of the board of directors of my fire department because the department was so small and really struggled to get people responding during the day because a lot of people worked outside of the area that if that pager went off and I was in school, I was good to leave with no repercussions. So I don't know if I really thought about balancing them. Like I said, the schoolwork was always fairly easy for me. So I never was never concerned in that area. And I was way more focused on getting to those calls and getting that experience. Were there any calls that sort of stood out during that time? Yeah, one for sure. It wasn't too long after I started. The department covered, as part of its area, this stretch of road called Mount Tom. It's not a real big mountain or anything, but it was pretty steep and treacherous for where we were. And it would often get foggy or icy. And it was in, I'd say, around the springtime. It was before school, so probably about 6 in the morning. We had a motor vehicle accident that ejected one of the passengers down the road. And I can remember uh, we were driving up the road towards the accident scene, and I was in the back of our rescue truck with Lee, who had been a paramedic for a while. And she turned to me and said, this is going to be bad. Get ready. And I don't know if I really appreciated what she was trying to tell me there, but she had heard that they were calling for the helicopter to land on the road because the person had been ejected. I think she was just trying to get me mentally prepared for what I was going to see. It was really interesting to me that we got out and this person who had been ejected was on their back and looked completely fine. Hardly a scratch that I could see, but they were screaming their head off. They found out when we rolled them, put them on the backboard, that they had slid down the road for probably like 200 feet on their back and there wasn't much left of their back. But, you know, we finished that call, went back to the station, cleaned up, got everything good to go, got my vehicle and went to English class. I walked into 10 minutes late. And the teacher is kind of like, where were you? I didn't know what to say. I just scraped this person off the road. The dichotomy of that was challenging to deal with. I wouldn't say that it stuck with me a long time, but it set the tone that you do this job, you see these things, and then you go home. It's not that people don't appreciate what you've done, but they don't necessarily understand it the same way that other firefighters would. Was there any addressing it from your crew or any other firefighters from your mom? Did she find out about it? How was it dialogued with you afterwards? I don't think it was dialogued at all. 
I certainly don't remember talking about it. And this was almost 16 years ago. Mental health certainly wasn't the topic of the day or understood or appreciated as it is today. Uh, So it was just kind of move on with it. One thing you did have exposure to was some leadership courses and activities through your school years. How did that shape you and form how you see that today? I was very fortunate that, I don't know if I just fell into it, but I became part of our student council at the high school and was given the opportunity to go on these leadership courses throughout the province. I don't think I really appreciated it back then, but it gave me a lot of exposure to different styles of leadership that kind of set me on the path of wanting to be the best leader that I could be, regardless of the position that I held. So I'm 15, 16, going to this two-day leadership course, picking up these points of thinking outside the box or going to other people who may have different solutions to a problem. That's totally okay. You don't have to come up with everything yourself. And all of these little bits and pieces that on their own were good tips, but together kind of made me who I am today, I guess. Did you always want from that volunteer work, want to be a firefighter or was it another career you had thoughts of before you made this decision? I was absolutely hooked on firefighting from the first call I ran. There was never a doubt in my mind that this is what I was going to do. My mom had some different thoughts on the matter. She said she didn't want me to be a firefighter. I was extremely fortunate that my grandmother had thought it important to invest in my education and my brother's education. So she had done registered education savings plans for us. So there was a decent chunk of money there available for my education. And before I had joined the fire department, I was very interested in becoming a computer science major, getting into maybe programming or designing video games. So after joining the department, the deal I made with my mother was that she'd accept firefighting as a career and help me with accessing the education money for that, as long as I applied to some universities for computer science as well, which I did. I applied to Dalhousie in Halifax for it. But if I'm being honest, I don't even remember if they sent me an acceptance letter or not, because I got into a pre-service program and that was that. How was the pre-service program? For me, at that point in my life, hard. I was not physically fit as a teen. We would do physical training every morning and I would go home physically exhausted and have a bath and pass out on the couch and get up the next morning and do it again. And at the end of the program, one of the instructors came up to me, he shook my hand, he said, congratulations. And he said, I never thought you would make it. (laughs) Legitimately, he was dead serious. He said, I never thought you would make it after that first day of physical training. I thought you were going to quit and we would never see you again. Did anybody quit? Yeah, there was a guy, from what I remember, I was thinking that this guy was pretty physically in shape and ready for this, and he left. We did an hour of PT in the morning, and we never saw that guy again. I think it'd be easy to assume that you grew up on a homestead, and you're growing a lot of your own food, that you probably have one of the healthiest diets going, but how were you eating during pre-service school? I've got some stuff I'm good at. Cooking is not one of those skills, and my wife will very happily tell you that cooking is not one of my strong suits. I took the road of convenience. I would buy frozen dinners and frozen food to pop in the microwave. And that somehow sustained me through pre-service. Looking back on it, I'm not really sure how I survived. I think I was probably eating just mostly salt at some points. But it was the easiest way, the, the most convenient way, and I took that road. So maybe just being younger and having a don't quit attitude was enough. Yeah, I think I was too stupid to quit. 
this was something that I wanted and they were going to have to throw me out of my ass. I wasn't leaving of my own volition. So after graduation, what came next? So I graduated pre-service and I worked security for a little while, which ended up being the only job that I've ever quit. And looking back on it, it was poor management, poor leadership. They were, the scheduling got a little screwy for a little while. So I was able to find another job working in a dispatch center and then applied to Halifax Fire while I was there and wasn't successful with Halifax, which was hard. This had been my dream. Halifax is the only department in Nova Scotia of any size that would be a career department. So I was left with a choice, and I chose to join the military. I'd always been interested in the military growing up. found military history fascinating, and I'd been in cadets for a brief period, so I ended up joining the military as a firefighter. And how was that process getting in? Looking back on it, it felt like it took absolutely forever. It's a process like any other department. I went in, submitted my application. When you submit your application to the military, you have to pick three trades and rank them in the order that you want them. And some people don't know, but the military has every job pretty much that you can imagine available as an option, from obviously infantry soldier to firefighter to cook airplane mechanic, electrician, everything's an option because when they deploy, you have to be able to be self-sufficient. So I submitted my application and I put down firefighter as my number one choice. And then I just kind of threw two others down, armored soldier and something else. So you submit your application, then you write a test that they score you on different categories to see if you're suitable. Every trait has a minimum threshold that you have to reach. I was eligible for firefighter. And then that's kind of where it stopped. It kind of seemed like the process just hit a wall. And I think I bugged the captain that was in charge of my application so much that he stopped answering my calls. And so I felt my situation in Halifax was at a point where I needed out. My dad was in Calgary at the time. So moving out there was an option. It was on the table, talking about applying to Calgary Fire. So I kind of last-ditch effort. I went in on a Friday to the recruiting center, cornered the captain. And was like, listen, I need out of Halifax. If you can't give me firefighter, can you give me armored? And this guy saved my career at this point. He said, listen, it's Friday. I can have you in Quebec on basic training in three days on Monday as an armored soldier. But let me call my guy in Ottawa who's looking after what they call a prior learning assessment. So they were looking at my pre-service training, determining whether or not I had to go through the full scope of training for firefighter or not before they made me a job offer. So he called. For some reason, the guy in Ottawa was still at his desk at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, which isn't the norm. And he had my file on his desk. And he's like, yeah, actually, I've got Andrew's file right here. Um, you can make him an offer for firefighter. So, you know, I was one step away from a completely different career, but was very fortunate that that captain was willing to pick up the phone and make that call. And how was it getting to basic training? I almost missed the flight to basic training, which <laughs> was incredibly stressful experience because my head was filled with visions of the military police hunting me down and all the things that would have gone with that. But yeah, I was fortunate that I, I ran through the airport. The security people were very understanding and let me jump to the head of the line. And I think I was the last person on the flight to Montreal. And then I ended up spending, I think, close to 12 hours in the Montreal airport waiting for someone to come get us from the base. That was an experience. How did you find those initial days and weeks of basic? I think it's fair to say that everyone, including myself, found it to be a bit of a culture shock. But I didn't find basic training to be that challenging. I figured out pretty quickly that it was a bit of a game. And if you played the game, then you were going to be fine. 
know, they would come and do a room inspection almost every day and they were going to find something wrong on that room inspection, whether or not there was something wrong there. So if you left something noticeably wrong, like your towels had to be on the towel rack lined up with each other, right? It's an attention to detail thing. If you left one a little bit longer, they pick up on that, make you do your push-ups, move along without tearing your closet apart to check all your shirts. The other part that really helped me through basic was it became like a barter system amongst the recruits that I was really good at polishing boots. I enjoy it. It de-stresses me, just that repetition. So I was able to trade, you know, like, hey, Scott, a whole polish your boots if you iron my shirts, right, if you were really good at ironing. Or, hey, I'll polish your boots if you clean whatever it was I had to clean. And so leaning into that teamwork aspect really helped make things go a lot easier, right? Instead of trying to tackle all of the tasks yourself, you found one that you were really good at, tackled that one, and had people help you with the other ones. You mentioned to me that you weren't allowed out of the building for the first four weeks. So I guess you were getting prepped for isolating. (laughs) Yeah, I've joked about it a few times that the military has given me some skills that I'm very good at and waiting around for long periods of time is one of them. Um, They wouldn't let you off the base and essentially out of the building, the building that you do basic training in in Quebec is called the Mega, and it has everything you need in it. It's got a little department store. It's got a subway sandwich shop. It's got the mess hall, obviously, where you eat most of your meals. It's got all the classrooms, all your accommodations, all in one building. And the theory that I understand now is that they don't want you to go into town or back home or wherever and lose all the effort they put into kind of, say, breaking you down and building you back up to the standard that they want. So they keep you in that world in what amounts to their total control for the first four weeks to make sure that indoctrination sticks. You said they also had a barbershop there. It did, if you could call it that. Um, (laughs) It was... I think the worst haircut any of us had ever received in our life, but there's not an option. First, they march you to where you can get the cash to pay the guy, and then they march you to the barbershop, and everybody gets a haircut whether they want it or not. Like most things in the basic training world, it was just kind of a meat grinder factory process, right? You go in, you sit down, you get your head buzzed, you give the guy the cash, you go out. Somebody else is in the seat five seconds later. I don't think there was a lot of incentive for for that barber to be really quality focused so much as quantity focused. How did you choose to approach the morning PT? I wasn't the most physically fit person in our platoon, but I had a background from high school of track and field. I I ran a lot. My cardio was pretty good and we would do a lot of morning runs for PT. We would get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning every morning and go for a run. There were people in in our platoon that really struggled with the run, so I would start out kind of at the front of the pack and then just let myself drift back until I found somebody that was really struggling. And I just focused on helping them like, Hey, stay with me. We're going to keep this pace, you know, stay on my back foot kind of thing. Uh, and just encourage them through it. One, I didn't think that I needed to compete to be at the front of the pack. I didn't see the point. It's all like I was going to get an award for being the first person up there. I was just going to be more tired at the end of the day. And I really found focusing on someone else, and helping them made the run go easier for me. So I leaned into that, and there were two in particular that I ended up really running with most of the time and were still 
close friends to this day from that experience. That also worked for you or was put into practice when you were out on free time as well? Yeah, I guess I would say I have maybe an instinct to protect or make sure that people that I'm with are okay. One of those people that I ran with, we were out in the town and the town's not necessarily the friendliest towards the military population. I mean, they see a lot of young people come through the military training system and not all of those people going through the training system are the greatest people. So they've had some trouble in town. We were out at a bar and one of the people from my platoon that I had been running with a good deal decided that they were going to go home back to the base. And they were very insistent that they were going to walk the probably five to six kilometers back to the base by themselves in the middle of the night. I ended up hailing a cab and putting them in the cab and then getting in with them to make sure that they went back because it wouldn't have been any character for them to wait till the capture in the corner and, and then hop out. I wasn't necessarily done my night at that point, but I felt that it was more important to make sure that the people that were part of my team got home safely than it was for me to have another drink. Did you guys have to do patrol and rotate leadership positions? Yeah, you're in basic for, I believe it was 13 weeks at that point. So 12 weeks of actual training and one week of grad week. And there's four sections that make up the platoon and the section leader for each section. And then the recruit is assigned that position. And they're given the, the nominal responsibility and authority to oversee their section through the daily tasks and make sure that everybody's towing the line. And then there's a platoon leader position as well for a recruit. And the last couple of weeks of basic, you spend mostly in the field. You do a week in the field for all your rifle qualifications. If you do a week in the field, living in a little shelter, simulating that you're out in the bush in another country. And then you do a week as if you were in a forward operating base. I was assigned as the section leader, as a recruit during that field phase where we were out in the tents. And one of the responsibilities I was given was I had to create a schedule. There had to be teams of two patrolling our little bivouac area every hour throughout the night. My section was up. We were given that task and I created the list. And it was probably three in the morning when my shift was done, mine and my fire team's partner. And we went to shake the next people to wake them up. And they gave us kind of the, what the hell, we're not up for another hour. And I looked at the schedule and I had missed that hour. So I had myself, my fire team partner assigned from two to three. I had this other team assigned from four to five, but I missed that hour in between. And the choice, right? I was nominally in charge of these recruits. It was within my power to say, I'm going to bed. You guys get up and do this one and the next one. That didn't sit well with me. I had screwed it up. It was my mistake and I needed to own it. So unfortunately, my fire team partner got dragged along with me, but we ended up staying awake for two hours that night to cover my mistake so that the other group could sleep and get up at their assigned time. And then you ended up being section leader for the next couple of weeks because of that? I'm not 100% sure why I was given the great honor of being section leader for the next couple of weeks, but the next three weeks in a row. So every Friday, they would sit you down in the classroom and say, okay, here's the platoon and the section seniors for the next week, and, and my name was on that list for the next few weeks. And looking back, I think it was probably because of that, or at least they felt like I was able to exhibit the qualities of leadership that they were looking for to get that section through the next few weeks of training. What followed BASIC? So because of that prior learning assessment that I was fortunate to have done, we graduated basic. We were bused to 
CFB Borden, which is just outside of Barrie, where all the support trades for the military, so like the medics, the firefighters, the cops, the vehicle technicians, all the training is done at that base. And I went to this platoon that the idea of this platoon was if you were awaiting training, you would sit in this platoon, they would use you to do menial tasks around the base, right? Somebody needs a thousand chairs set up for a graduation ceremony. They would ask for some people. Her platoon would give them the people to set up the chairs. But I was very fortunate that this prior learning assessment had been done. So I was course loaded on a semi-skilled course almost right away. Started basic in March, graduated in like July, and was on a course in September. That was very much not the normal at the time. But several of the people that I was on course with had been waiting on that holding platoon for upwards of a year, waiting for that semi-skilled course. Because what had to happen was they had to get the right number of people. I think they had to have at least 16, if my memory serves, semi-skilled candidates to actually justify running a course. So I was fortunate to just come in at the tail end of that when they had the right number of people. So I did that course. My initial training was, if you came in unskilled, your initial training for firefighter was nine months. Because I was semi-skilled, having done the pre-service, I started my course in September. I was in a fire hall by December. So it was like three months and a little bit of training. And what followed that? Where were you sent? So the way that it worked for your first posting, at least in my experience with the firefighter world, is they come in and they give you a paper to write down your three choices of where you'd like to go. And you kind of get a bit of background on all the bases that you have the opportunity to choose. And I had heard that Cold Lake, Alberta, while it is remote, was the busiest base on the force as far as firefighting goes. And I had no attachments anywhere at that point. And I really wanted to get the training that I had to get done once I graduated my first phase of training. I wanted to get the second phase done as quickly as I could. And I wanted to be somewhere that was busy that I would get a lot of experience, a lot of call volume. I wanted to do the job. So I put down Cold Lake as my first choice. And the sergeant that gave us the paperwork had told us basically there was Cold Lake and there was a place in Quebec called Bagotville. And they were so short staffed as far as firefighters went that if we put those words down anywhere on the piece of paper, we were going there. Whether it was our first choice or our third, that's where you were going. I put down Cold Lake as my first choice and they sent me there. How long was the on the job training package? The on the job training package consisted of probably like 15 or 16 different skills that you get to demonstrate or do presentations on. And at a minimum, it was 18 months that you had to spend at the fire hall before you could be considered completed that package and go back to Borden for your second phase of training. And at a maximum, I think it was 48 months. So you had to complete it somewhere in that time frame. I picked Cold Lake because I thought it would give me the best shot at getting that done as quickly as possible. And I was correct. 18 months to the day that I graduated my first phase of training, I was back in Borden on my second phase. And the relationship came about during that time as well. Yeah, there was a running joke of a few people that I worked with. There's this thing that happens in the military, to quickly explain, that as you go through your phases of training, generally you have a certain peer group that you go through those phases with, right? Even though I've been posted to Cold Lake when I went back on my second phase of training, there were people there that on that second phase that I had been on the first phase with. So generally, you'll find that one or two people will be on the same courses at the same time throughout their whole career. The term they use for that is course life. You're going to do courses with that person throughout your whole career. The running joke with the people in my peer group was that I had decided that none of them were good enough to be my course wife, so I decided to go out and find a course wife every course I went on. That first phase of training ended poorly, but 
the second phase, I met the woman who would become my wife and is still my wife during that time. It was actually my first foray into the online dating world. So I'm going to say I have 100% success at that and I'm never going back. <laughs> she was in Kitchener at the time. And you scooped her up before she left the country. Yeah, I still laugh about it. And I, I don't really know what I did right. But Rachel, her grandmother was born in England and raised there and then later immigrated to Canada. But through their visa process, if you have a relative of like that grandmother level, you can get an ancestry visa to live and work in England. So she had her visa. Her cat had had all its shots to go over there. She was basically just trying to line up a place to work. And then she met me and decided that Cold Lake was a better option than London. <laughs> Which, still not really sure how that compares, but I'll take it. Obviously, it's worked out rather well for us. So what posting did you take after Cold Lake? When I went back off my second phase of training, I was at a level where I was now qualified to do all the aspects of the job without having to be supervised over all of them. And Rachel moved back with me at that time. And Cold Lake, like I said, is very isolated. If you like hunting and fishing, Cold Lake is the place for you. If you like any amenities of civilization, probably not so much. We got back to Cold Lake. We were there for maybe six months. And the warrant officer who was in charge of my shift at the fire hall came in to the kitchen. We were eating dinner one day and said, listen, they're looking for people to go to Winnipeg. Does anybody want to volunteer? So I stepped outside, gave Rachel a quick call to check to see if Winnipeg is somewhere she would be interested in, which she was. She was happy to maybe get back to civilization at that point. So I went back in and expressed my interest in volunteering. And I remember the warrant said, I'll put your name in, but this isn't going to happen. Like, you have to understand this is not something that's going to happen. You just got back here off training. They're going to want to keep you here. So we gave the value back from the training. Finished that night shift, went home, slept, came in for the next night shift, and showed up to work. And the warrant threw a piece of paper at me and said, here you go, asshole. You're going to Winnipeg. <laughs> he couldn't believe that it had happened, and neither could I, honestly. And you got to add to it that if Cold Lake was the busiest hall in the military fire system, Winnipeg was probably the slowest. So it wasn't lottery winning, although I would say that people who are posted to Cold Lake fall into one of two groups. They either love Cold Lake and never want to leave or are counting the days until they can leave. And I was probably somewhere in the middle of that. You also were still struggling with fitness at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I was 130 pounds when I joined the military in 2009. I'm 185 now, and I don't think that anyone would say I had 50 pounds to lose at this point. So I was pretty skinny, pretty out of shape. Basic training put 20 pounds onto my frame with the physical activities and eating three meals a day. And then in Cold Lake, I was borderline. Honestly, I was not an example of physical fitness. I could do the job, but not excel at it. If I had me back then on my crew today, I would be concerned. And in Winnipeg, after the birth of my daughter, we had to do a physical fitness test every year for the firefighting trade, and I failed the test. It was the first time it had ever happened. It's a 10-task circuit, and you have eight minutes to complete it. I would normally complete it in seven minutes. Not a great time, but also still a pass. So I was satisfied with that at that point in my life. After Maddie was born, I failed the test by like three seconds. So it was in a gray area that they let me have a chance to retest it a couple of weeks later. But I was not happy with myself at that point. I went home from that failure, got online, looked at gyms in the area and found a CrossFit gym, went and joined it the next day and never looked back. I don't remember what drew me to CrossFit. 
Like I may have seen some of the games. They kind of led me down that path, but I love the class atmosphere, the workouts, everything about it. I got into that heavy and completely changed my physical fitness. And where was your next posting? So we left Winnipeg 2015. We had been in Winnipeg for just about four years, which is the normal posting cycle for a firefighter in the military. Rachel and I had talked Again, with the three choices, there's a form online for any member of the military where they can put kind of their three posting preferences. And then there's a person in your trade. They're called the career manager. And their job is to move the pieces around the board to fill all the positions that need to be filled with the people who are appropriately ranked for those positions across the trade. So Rachel's from Ontario and wanted to get back to Ontario, back to her family. I really had no skin in the game as far as family was concerned. My mom is still in Nova Scotia. My dad's in Alberta. wasn't really concerned with going to either one of those locations. So there's two posting options here in Ontario, one being Borden, which is the school, obviously where I'd done all my training. And then Trenton, Ontario is the other one, which is a fire hall. So I put those postings down and then continuing what I consider to be my series of good luck events when it came to my career. The career manager speaks to everyone who's potentially going to get posted, and they schedule you. Somehow they had gotten their wires crossed, and I went ahead of one of my peers. And we heard previous to the meeting, my peer was going to get Borden, and I was going to get Halifax. Timings get mixed up. I go into the meeting at the wrong time where my peer should have been in there. We looked at my preferences and said, oh, I see you have Borden here. Well, I'll send you to Borden, and I'll send your peer to Halifax. Okay. I was pretty happy with that. So we ended up coming here to Ontario to Borden, and I was posted as an instructor at the school. And then why did you finally choose to shift out of the military? If I'm being honest, one of the toughest choices of my life to leave the military, just the way the career system in the military works, and I knew where I was headed. I was on a career track to continue advancement through the military system. I was a master corporal, going to be promoted to sergeant, within a couple of months of the time that I ended up leaving. My career path was very clear, but like I said, every three to four years, you're picking up and moving, which is incredibly hard on your family. You know, Rachel, we have been her third or fourth career change at that point. If we had left, which was what we were looking at, you know, me getting promoted and leaving, going somewhere else. Maddie, she had just turned two or three. So she was starting to make friends in the area and get into different activities. So it would have started to have an effect on her. It wasn't a sacrifice that I was willing to make at that point. So I started looking for outside opportunities. I actually was at a CrossFit gym in Collingwood with a member of Brampton Fire talking about the recruitments. He just kind of put it in my ear. He said, you know, we've had a few people in our train division go back to the floor over the past year. There's going to be some opportunities there. Maybe you should keep an eye out for that posting. I don't know why I never really considered the training officer role for a career fire department even though it was the same job that I was doing in the military at that time. It worked out. The timing was there. And, you know, again, with the career, good luck charm that I seemed to have, I was able to interview well and get a job at Crimson. And what differences did you find between the military and an urban fire department? To its benefit and to its detriment, the military very much has a stringent structure, especially as far as training goes. It is laid out from top to bottom of this is how training will be conducted. This is how down to if you have 15 students on this course, this is how much time per subject you're allotted. In the civilian side, the lack of that structure, it can help and it can hurt. And what was your experience working with firefighters and teaching recruits? The first recruit class I was a part of, 
it was a culture shock to me in the same way that joining the military had been because I had just come from a school where it was perfectly acceptable to be harsh with the students or drop and give me 10 push-ups or whatever. It wasn't the same on the civilian side. The union environment was something I had to adapt to for sure. Not to say it was bad. It has its great aspects for sure. And then the firefighters, it's strange for someone to be hired into a training role or into the department where nobody on the department knows them. That is totally out of character for the area that we work in. Somebody usually knows the person or knows somebody that knows them. But for me, I came into that job where nobody knew me. All I wanted was to do right by the people I was teaching, by the people I was supporting on the floor, and with the tertiary goal of making a good name for myself. An incident with the first recruit class where there was a double booking for our live fire tower. The rope rescue team was doing some sign-offs on the top of the tower, and we were doing pumping, and it was actually flowing master streams at that point. So I told the recruits, we're not going to flow above the second story. We don't want to put the rope rescue team in any danger. Turn the deck gun down as low as it will go. And unfortunately, I didn't confirm that they had it down as low as it would go. So when the first recruit charged it, it flowed and the rope rescue team got a little bit wet. The recruit pulled it and then hopped up to adjust it. And you have that moment where you see that stream of water start to go. And my gut just dropped, like, that is going to hit the top of the tower 100%. So I ran over and slammed it shut. One of the members of the rope rescue team was coming back from the station, saw what happened, justifiably got very irate with the group of recruits. And because nobody knew me, and as just a training officer, I had no distinguishing marks. I had the same color helmet, same uniform, everything as the group of recruits I was at. This firefighter had no idea that I was the instructor. So again, faced with a choice, I absolutely could have just let him tear a strip off the recruits and go on his way and done nothing about it. But I'm the instructor. The ownership and responsibility for everything that happens on that fire ground lies with me. So I stepped up and told him, like, hey, I'm training Officer Gould. This is all my fault. It doesn't matter that I given the instructions or that I tried to prevent it. It happened. And so the training officer has to wear it in that circumstance. What about your experiences with the fire department has made you want to make the jump to the floor? There's a couple of things that make me want to move back to the trucks, back to the floor. I started down this career path almost 16 years ago, loving to help people. That's the aspect of the job that I love the most is showing up to a bad situation to what could be the worst moment in someone's life. And when you leave for good or bad, that situation is different than when you showed up. And hopefully it's for the good. And that's something that really fuels my passion for this job. And I've been training firefighters now since 2016. And I just need to reconnect with that passion. I've lost it a bit. And so that's kind of what's fueled this drive to go back to the trucks. Do you think once you settle into that role again, that you'll want to keep instructing? I won't say anything's a certainty, but I would enjoy doing the role of shift instructor or something similar, maybe in a few years time. I wouldn't presume to want to do that in the first couple of years being back on the trucks. I want to spend some time on the truck running calls and working on my own skills before looking back to teaching. But that being said, there are aspects of the training officer job that I really do love. I really enjoy being out on the drill floor with the recruits or with firefighters running through skills, 
So I can absolutely see myself filling that shift instructor role if it's available down the road. And obviously you'll take whatever assignment you get. Do you have a preference though? Aerial, pumper, squad, tech rescue, hazmat? You're 100% correct in that I will do whatever job gets assigned to me with no complaints. I will just be happy to be there. If I had to voice my preference, I would like to go to a two-truck haul that's fairly busy. Pump squad would be, I think, my preference. There's aspects that I like and don't like about every assignment. I'll just be happy to be there. Talk to me about testosterone and how you discovered that might be an issue with you and what you've done and how it's worked out. I've never been the biggest guy around, but I've worked my ass off at the gym. For a long time, I lived the gym. But I never really found myself making the kind of progress that people similar to me were making. That was one piece of it. What am I not doing right here? Am I not eating right? Am I not sleeping right? Am I not recovering right? Like, what's not going right here? And then the other piece of it is I've battled mental health for a long time. I've been depressed, anxiety, all those things. Still, even with what I found, I struggle with sleep and waking up feeling rested or having down days. I just don't want to get off the couch. Like, you know, you need to, but you don't really have that drive. And so that's how depression kind of manifests for me is I will lose myself in a book and come out eight hours later, having finished an entire book in a day. The mental health thing was kind of the biggest piece. I was fatigued. I was battling depression and doing the things that you do, right? You go talk to somebody, you do the meditation, you do all those things, but nothing was getting better. And one day, I, I forget, honestly, if it was an article I was reading online or what triggered the thought, but it came up that low testosterone could be an issue. When you read the list of symptoms for someone who has chronically low testosterone, if there were 10 symptoms, I had eight. And it seemed like a relatively easy thing to go get checked out. I did the reading, whatever I could get my hands on, what the normal values were and what to look for. And so I went to my family physician. Here's everything that's going on, laid it all for and asked if we could get the blood work done. The problem is I started talking about the gym when I started talking about this. And so lots of family physicians see lots of younger guys that want to do better in the gym. They come in asking to get their testosterone levels checked. And it's not for the right reason. Everybody's a little bit skeptical. We'll check this for you, Andrew, but that's probably not the reason. But you have the blood work done, and it comes back in the normal range. The problem is the normal range is the normal range from everybody from 16 to 90. There's no accounting for your age in that range. And when I say it was in the normal range, if the normal range was 10 milligrams per milliliter of blood, I was at 11. I'm 32 in relatively good physical condition. Nothing else going on, but I am at, you would expect a 90-year-old man to come back at. My family physician, though, said, you're in a normal range. Let's look at some other stuff. That didn't sit too well with me. I had already read how hard it is to get the diagnosed and get replacement therapy because of the negative social connotation, but you just want to be better in the gym or you just want to be better physically. And I just wanted a second opinion. If the second person said it's normal, Let's look at other things. I probably would have backed off at that point. Two doctors agree on it, then they're a lot more educated than I am. But I went to a place in Guelph and sent them all my blood work. They asked for a bit more blood work and then had a conversation with the practitioner. And she was like, yeah, it's normal, but it shouldn't be normal for you. This shouldn't be where you're at. She explained that 
if you look back 10 years ago, the normal range, I wouldn't have been inside of it 10 years ago, but they keep adjusting the normal range, keeps getting lower and lower. So we talked about the pros and the cons of the replacement therapy, injecting testosterone or taking it in other methods. There's like a dermal patch or a cream that you can rub on. Your body stops producing what it is producing now. If you're younger and still looking to have kids, they try and stay away from it because it can reduce the fertility. Um, so you're not able to have kids. And there were a few other things. For me, you know, I wasn't planning on having any other kids. I was okay with all the other stuff. So we started a treatment course. We talked about different options, decided that injections were the best way. There's some problems with the cream that if I rubbed it on and then got in the bed and it got on the sheets and then my daughter got in the bed later, she could still get that and that could adversely affect her, which I'm not playing that game. I hate needles. I hate injections, but I'm not going down that other road. So needle. So we started with once a week uh, with whatever the dose was in a couple of weeks and then did some blood work and then modified from there. But Man, Scott, it was crazy. I'm not joking. Two hours after I injected that first time, but it was a different world. It was a different me. I wasn't wanting to just lose myself in a book and sit on the couch all day. I had energy. I was ready to go. And so even now, 18 months, maybe closer to two years into this, my wife will tell you she'll notice I miss if I forget to inject on the day at the specific time. She'll be like, it's off. The hormones aren't there. And when I inject, it comes back real quick. It had a profound impact on me. There were two sides of it. So the positive side was was like I had been living with one arm tied behind my back. That I was doing the things I needed to do. My life was going the way I wanted it to, but I was just working a lot harder for it than I needed to be. So I started this and it was like, hey, now I got both hands. I can still do the things I want to do, but everything's a lot easier now. But there was also the negative side effect that everything was a lot easier now. And like I said, I was in the gym a lot. But I started to feel ashamed of the changes that were happening because everything got easier and all of the stuff I was tracking at the gym, right, whether it be how many pull-ups I could do or how much I could back squat, that jumped 50% in two weeks. There's a reason that this hormone has such a wide reputation for people who want to be bodybuilders or whatever to take because it works. It does the things they say it does. But for me, I stopped celebrating the accomplishments because I felt like I was cheating. Even though it was bringing you to what normal should be and people that had normal levels were taking it and pushing to the high end. Right. And it took me a while in conversations with some close friends and with my wife that brought me to that one arm tied behind the back analogy that it wasn't that I was cheating. I was just where everybody else was now. Yeah, you'd never felt normal before. Yeah, and I didn't know that. I thought the way I felt was normal is I think with most mental health things, you think the way you feel is normal and everybody else feels that way until you realize or talk to a therapist or have that kind of light bulb moment that, hey, this isn't actually normal. It took me a while to get to the point where I was like, okay, I'm just normal now. I'm just on the same playing field as everybody else instead of having to try and climb this mountain. It was hard for a long time. It is an interesting thing that maybe people wouldn't think about when they would go down this road. Yeah, you need to be prepared. We had a friend of ours at Lee's house, so she's a close personal friend, but she's also our cleaning lady, and she would come in once a week. And so for the first little while, 
you have the needles and all the stuff you use to do these injections. And I wouldn't want to put it in the garbage can. Like I'd want to almost ball it up and take it to local grocery store and throw it in that garbage can. Not the needles, of course, those are going in a sharps container, but packaging from the needle. Because I didn't want it in the garbage can if somebody we knew was going to come over and see that because I was ashamed of it. Yeah, so really one of your main points for wanting to bring this forward is that we just have to bring it to people's awareness and start to fight that perception like we do with a lot of things. I know how I felt about going into it, being nervous of the public perception. It was probably six months to a year before I started telling people that this is what I was doing because I really didn't know how those conversations were going to play out. Were people going to take the, well, you're cheating or you're taking steroids with all the negative connotations that steroids come with, or were they going to be supportive? And I mean, everybody's been supportive at this point. But if us having this conversation and people listening to this conversation help anyone, even just, hey, this is the thing that I should check out. They go online, look at the symptoms and check it out and end up being the thing for them. Like, I know how life-changing it's been for me, and I want that for other people if that's the correct answer. That's great. Do you have any preference on nozzles? <laughs> that is like the third rail conversation of our department <laughs> right now, isn't it? Um, yeah. There's definitely a need to evaluate some things when there shouldn't be. Obviously, I've had extensive conversations with a number of people about the subject, and we're in the midst of trying to change the fog nozzles on our high-rise package to smooth bores. And I just don't understand sometimes, to be blunt, the opinion that, that fog nozzles should be used in high-rise. It doesn't make sense to me. If you take five minutes and read anything on the subject, including the manufacturer's recommendations, it just doesn't make sense. But you end up with firefighters that dig their heels in and are convinced that this is just change for change's sake or heard you guys just want to be like New York or things along that nature. Our profession tends to judge the person first and the information second to an extent. And so if someone personally thinks you're a good firefighter, they're more likely to take the information coming from you more readily. Or if they personally like you, same thing, right? He's a good guy. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. But if they don't, for whatever reason, they've had a negative experience with you personally, they're not going to listen to what you have to say, no matter how valid it is. And there seems to be this unwritten rule that if you want to change something, that you have to come with an ironclad, indisputable argument, fact-based but the people that want to defend the way it currently is don't have to defend it at all. I think that we get stuck in this fallacy that the fires go out, the extrications happen, the medical calls run well. And so the way we're doing it must be the best way to do it because all of these things happen successfully. And it's a fallacy because just because something worked doesn't mean that it's the best way to do it. All it means is that you got lucky doing what you're doing. That leads to this, like you said, anybody that wants to change something has to have this bulletproof presentation slash argument on this new nozzle or new technique or whatever before they bring it forward because the people who are on the opposite side of the argument generally are just saying, well, we do it this other way and that's never gotten us hurt or never caused a poor outcome. So why would we even change it? And then they're not willing to look at anything else. 
Well, not that luck is even a part of it, but I do wish you the best of luck with getting the phone call and it'd be great to work with you at that level. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I mean, to hear guys of your stature or several of the people in the department say, we really hope you get this. We want to work with you. means more to me than, than a lot of other praise ever could. The biggest compliment I think you can pay a guy or a girl in our service is to say that you want to work with them. Because what you're saying when you say that is, I want you on my truck because I think you're going to do, one, a great job for the people we serve, and two, you're going to increase the chances of me going home to see my family. And so that compliment means the world to me. Well, I'm glad we had the opportunity to talk today. Me too, man. Best place that people can reach out to you if they want to connect? I mean, social media is always an option. Um, uh, failing that, if anybody reaches out to you, you can always give them my email address. I'm always happy to talk to people. What handle can they find you under on Instagram? It's a really great question. I believe it is Firebug2012. Yep, that's it. Awesome, man. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. You too, brother.